our journey through the book of Matthew, and uh, before we get to chapter 5, which is probably one of the most well-known uh, passages in all of Scripture, in the Lord's the Sermon on the Mount, we want to uh, deal with the latter part of chapter 4. Uh, it's included in the Bible for a reason, and uh, so we want to take a look at that. Last week, we finished up our look at the temptation of Jesus. We saw that Satan tried to get Jesus to mistrust three things, really. God's providential care, to presume on his providential care, that is to tempt God. Remember, so to uh, mistrust is to make the bread into stones into bread because you don't trust God to take care of you. To presume on his providential care, throw yourself off the temple uh, and kind of let's tempt him, let's get him to uh, do what we want him to do, or to give himself over to something or someone other than the true God and worshiping Satan. And so another way we could say what we looked at was, I have to take care of things myself, or I will get God to take care of me as I want, and I will trust in things other than the Lord. All those temptations can kind of be summed up like that. And so uh, we saw that life then is not just about survival or pleasure. It is primarily about knowing and serving and enjoying the Lord. And then we uh, refer to 1 John 2.15, which I think kind of plays into this, as John talks about not to love the things of the world, not to love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, that is, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along, uh, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so, again, pleasure, things of the flesh, the desires of the flesh is pleasure, the desires of the eyes are things, material, and pride of life, pride of position. What others think about you. Those are the three primary ways we are tempted to call us away from the Lord and worshiping him and worshiping ourselves. <clears throat> and so as we come to this last section, we are seeing, as I've entitled the message, the ministry of the king. We, we've seen Jesus and John proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, that it was about to begin. We have saw also, in the overall context, this is about kingdom then. It's about the coming of the kingdom. Now we're going to see the primary ministry of the kingdom, and what the kingdom is all about. And then we're going to see, when we get to chapter 5, we're going to see examples of kingdom living, those who examples of those who are in the kingdom. So there's a, a flow to this. Verse 12 transitions us from John's ministry as the forerunner to Christ to the ministry of Christ himself. It would appear that Jesus sees John's arrest as a sign that his ministry now is beginning, that John is being taken away, John will be beheaded. I think in chapter 11 we'll see that of John or, or up that area uh, of, of, Matthew, of the book of Matthew. So he's being removed from the scene, and Jesus' ministry is now going to have the forefront. Uh, there is something else in chapter 12 that I think deserves comment. 
Elsewhere, we read that he was in, that John was imprisoned, and of course later executed, because he told Herod and his wife that they were living in adultery. Uh, just uh, that's what that's what gave impetus to what happened here in verse twelve with John being arrested. Uh, Herod, this is not Herod the Great, but his son Herod uh, had um, his uh, Herodias was uh, the wife of his brother Philip. And he fell in love with her and got her to uh, leave Philip and to live with him. I'm not sure if they ever got married, but I know to begin with they were just living together. And so we notice here that this is why John is in prison. And John is telling Herod that you're living in adultery. This This is adultery to do this, and it's wrong. And of course, Herodias hated that, and she eventually gets uh, Herod to kill John. We'll talk about that later when we get to it, but that's kind of a well-known story. But my point here is that Jesus never told John that, hey, you know what? You don't need to, to make a big deal over that. Just just calm down. Uh, there's no reason to, 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 to be imprisoned and lose your head over this, literally. <clears throat> uh, that that you, don't, you don't need to point that stuff out. Jesus doesn't chide John for that. And if it was good and God honored, because Jesus has nothing but good to say about John the Baptist, and so if it was good for John to speak out and even to die over the subject of, of here, in this case, uh, adultery and, and, and marriage, and, and I'm, again, I'm not sure that it was ever an official divorce, but it's all really the same thing that's going on here that we see here that God sees all this as pretty important, so much so that he's okay with John pointing this out and losing his life over it. And while divorce and remarriage and, and these things can sometimes be complicated, this is a clear case of right and wrong. And so my point here is that we need to keep this in mind and that it is part of the calling of the Christian and certainly the church to Speak out against sin. Because see, we're living in a day and age where the church is told to keep your mouth shut. Don't tell us that we're living in sin. That's hate speech. Well, if that's the case, then John and Jesus are guilty of hate speech. But as we know, it is the most loving thing you can do to point out the fact that, you know, God hates this. And that though he says that those who do this are going to end up under his judgment in hell. And so let me tell you very lovingly that there is a way of escape from the wrath of God. That's not hate speech. That's what we've been called to do. And there's a lot of churches out there who have completely abandoned all that and think that it is their job to invite people in to the church, tell them that God loves them no matter what they're doing, and not to call them to repent. And I've seen examples of that. I know examples of that. And we need to to be careful about that because they've lost their way. Uh, The the sinners, and we're all sinners, I understand that. We all at one point had to be called out of that and to repent of our sin and to come to Christ and to forsake our sin as best as we are able. Not that God doesn't care what we're doing, that he loves us anyway. Because he's going to cast such people into hell someday. And that's what the Bible teaches. And so we need to be careful about that. So I thought I'd just point that out. There's a prime example where 
they understood it was not their job to just let people do whatever they wanted to do and never warn them of the wrath to come. Another thing here, then, that I want to point out, and I know that's probably not easy for anybody to see. Uh, you know, I don't really know what else to do about it. Uh, but this is a picture of Palestine in Jesus' day. And since we're going to be talking a little bit about this, Judea was down here. This is where Jerusalem is. Up here is Samaria. Remember, the Samaritans were kind of the, the, the mixed breed where the Assyrians brought in people from other nations when they uh, carried off Israel and had them intermix with the people they left. They were kind of half-breeds, and the Jews considered them dogs and wanted no part of them. And that's Samaria. And then up here is Galilee, which is where Jesus is going to go and start his ministry that we're going to read about today. Over here is the Decapolis the, the and the, the Ten Cities is where they get the name. That was over there. And so that's kind of the area here. And just to kind of keep that in mind, because Jesus, remember in John, Jesus leaves and he goes... He, he says, I must needs be go through Samaria when he wanted to go to Galilee. And the disciples really didn't understand it because, you know, the good Pharisaical Jews would, who didn't want to get mixed up with the, with these sinners up here. They would go over here all the way around Jordan and come up and they want, need to go to Galilee. And Jesus says, no, I've got to go to Samaria because you know what? He's been called to sinners and he, and there were some sinners. In Samaria, just like there were in Judea and Galilee, who needed to be saved. So anyway, that's kind of the, the geographical look of what we're looking at here. And in the first four chapters of John, we read about Jesus' early ministry down in Judea, where we don't read about some of those things in the Synoptic Gospels, including Matthew. And so, um, I just wanted to kind of explain some things that were going on before we get to Chapter 4 of Matthew. Um, Matthew passes over many of the things that John brings out early in his uh, gospel. Uh, we are told about some things uh, like him ret- before he returned to Galilee, as we're seeing here, Jesus met and called his first disciples. Uh, really, we might say that if you remember, we've been in John chapter 1. Jesus really didn't call his disciples there. They, John points out that he's the Messiah, and they kind of gather around him. You know, he doesn't actually say, follow me at that point. They kind of are drawn to him, spend a, evidently some time with him, but then Jesus, for about a year, perhaps, goes off. He's tempted, among other things. And now, John, uh, Matthew kind of picks up the uh, account where Jesus, after doing... Uh, doing some different things, uh, decides he needs to go up to Galilee, and that's where uh, he goes to Samaria, talks to a Samaritan woman, and when he gets to Galilee, this is where Matthew kind of picks up the um, uh, account. But before that, he had already been to Capernaum, because that's where he had changed water into wine in Canaan, which is nearby. Uh, he spent a short time in Capernaum, and in uh, um, in different places around Galilee, before he returns to Jerusalem. Then he drives the money changers out of the temple. That's where he talks to Nicodemus. Uh, And then he returns to Galilee and talks to a Samaritan woman, and and that's where we are now. So all the things we read about in John, the first four chapters, take place before 
what we're seeing here in Matthew. So just, just some idea of what's going on. Another reason to point this out is that Jesus does start his ministry really in, in full force publicly in Galilee, which is interesting because the Orthodox Jews just kind of considered Galilee, Galilee to be backwater hicks. And so it kind of offended them that he would even call his disciples and do anything up there. And so just to give you some verses that kind of show this attitude, over in Acts chapter 4, it says, And there is a salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among by which we must be saved. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and discovered that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized that these men had been with Jesus. And because they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say against this. So they they knew that Peter and John were Galileans. They were fishermen. They they were uneducated in the sense of uh, like the Pharisees. And so they just didn't how didn't understand how they could know what they're talking about. Uh, over in uh, Matthew chapter twenty seven. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and given him support were also there, watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Mary the son of Zebedee. So these, of course, were mothers of, of, of his disciples, and uh, they were from Galilee, because that's where Jesus started his ministry. <clears throat> and so Jesus... It said here in verse 15, is the light of the world. He begins his public ministry by proclaiming light in Galilee, which considered by the, again, the, the kind of self-righteous Jew to be an area of darkness. Well, it certainly was. But, but everywhere on earth is, is darkness without the, the, the word of God. And so but he starts that, and then uh, he starts there, and then Matthew tells us this is fulfilling the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah, where the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, and beyond the Jordan, these are all areas up there in the area of, Je- of, the, of Galilee, <clears throat> of G- Galilee of the Gentiles, because it had a heavy Gentile population, which is another reason why the Jews really didn't care for it. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. So, of course, that light is Jesus. And, and, of course, it goes on to say, for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them a light is dawned. And so what we're kind of seeing is just a little picture of what the gospel does. Because as, as I was praying earlier, we once were in the land of darkness, in, in our sin. And Jesus shone that light and he brought us out. He, he forgave us of our sins. And he gave us light and a new nature. And so you kind of see a picture of the gospel going on there. And so then in verse 17, it says that from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So now he publicly starts doing what John the Baptist does, going out and preaching the kingdom. So that's the, that's the uh, context, the preaching of the kingdom. And, of course, just like John, it is done through repentance. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Of course, we know, as we've been talking about, the kingdom of heaven is is a spiritual thing. Jesus said it's within you. He told Nicodemus just before this, remember, if you want to see the kingdom, you've got to be born again. It's, it's, a, it's, being, 
It's a spiritual thing. It's not here. It's not there. And so, Jesus, uh, in keeping with what John did, does the same thing. So we can stop here, though, and uh, a couple of things to point out in verses uh, 17 through 19 is that uh, as he goes, he's while he's doing this, one day he walks by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these disciples, and he already knew them, as we saw in John. They had spent some time with him. They're back fishing because that was their livelihood. And now he calls them permanently. And he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're fishing. That's all well and good. I'm going to, I'm now going to call you to make you fishers of men, of course. And so it says they dropped their nets and they walked away and they followed Christ from that time on. They left their, he said they left their boats. They left their fathers. Uh, they left that. They, they became disciples at this point full, full time. And so, as a church, we might keep in mind that the gospel is the center, central message that we are to proclaim. This, if you're a disciple of Christ, you're a, this, you're a fisher of men. Now, we're not all disciples, we're not all apostles. They had a special calling, a special work that passed away when they passed away. But obviously, in the Great Commission, we know that the church is called to carry on the work of proclaiming the gospel throughout the whole world. That's our primary motivation. Christ's motivation to his disciples is that people are dying in their sins. They're facing eternity in hell. And uh, and of that mission, the apostles never were sidetracked. Never sidetracked into thinking that the church had any other purpose than that. Calling sinners out of darkness, teaching them the word of God, making disciples of the nations. That's why we're here. We're not here to be charities. Doesn't mean that we can't be charities. Doesn't mean that we can't have our hand in some of those things. But we're here to preach the gospel. We're here to reach the lost. And we gotta be very careful uh, about Losing the way, because many churches have. They become social organizations. They become charitable organizations. But you can't find the word of God being proclaimed there. John MacArthur has that interest. He tells an interesting story that illustrates this, I think, very well. As there used to be, uh, long ago, on the East Coast, uh, an area where there were many shipwrecks. And a few people got together, and they built a little hut with some supplies and any time they had a couple of boats, little little boats there, and any time they knew of a shipwreck, they would go and they would try to save as many people as they could. And as people began to see this work, they began to be attracted to it. And they started uh, supporting it. They eventually built a little bit bigger of a building, and they put some hospital beds in there, and they they brought supplies in. They get get got them better boats so that they could do a better work. And eventually, you know, they they, they, they kept upgrading the building and people started coming and socializing there together. And, uh, they even had a little, a boat that they put in the, where they met to kind of remind them in the head, you know, uh, decorations about saving people's lives and, and so forth. And eventually though, uh, you know, one day they, they had, a, a, a several people come in who had been shipwrecked and they had to bring them in and they were cold and, uh, they were wet and, and in poor health, and they brought them in to, to take care of them. And some of the people who gathered there, who were members of this little organization, well, 
this is what makes us uncomfortable. So they built a shower outside, said, make sure you clean these people up before you bring them in here, you know. And so it, it grew and it grew, and finally they, they, they just quit uh, supporting the, uh, the ministry of saving people's lives entirely. And, and the people who, who didn't like that, they went off and they started another little uh, rescue mission thing, and they started doing the work, and eventually that would grow, and this, they had the same problem. People said, well, we, we just want to have a nice uh, club here. And, and they, got, they didn't want to see all the, this other stuff going on. And, and, of course, this point was, that's exactly what happens with churches. They get, they get so fancy that they, they, they don't want to see uh, people come in who lives are ruined. And they, we want the right kind of people. I, I, had a, I used to have a man in my first church. Who, uh, and I, I believe he was saved. I believe he's in heaven right now. But he, I think he had a struggle with that. I, I, he would pray almost every time he would pray, he would say, Lord, send us the right kind of people. And I used to think, I don't, what in the world are you talking about? Who, who's the right kind of person? I'm not a Herbertson, sure. I, it could be that he, 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 he wanted, you know, he, he was, he was a little bit of a racist, you know, he was down south, he was a little bit of a racist. I, and I think he, you know, he just is careful about who we let in this church. It's eventually why we had caused some problems. One, one reason why I ended up leaving. So we got to be careful here. We're here to reach all people, and, and, and there's no one out there who you're any better than, and you're that's not you're just as bad a sinner. But sometimes we lose our way. We lose our relevancy as Christians. So one thing this illustration reminds us is that this is God's kingdom. And the strong gives themselves up for the weak. Jesus made himself of no reputation. Jesus, who was the second person of the Godhead, uh, became a man and was born in humble circumstances and served. He said, I came to serve, not to be served. The natural man teaches that it's the survival of the fittest. But that's contrary to God's way. Later on, Jesus will tell us that if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you're going to serve. Because if you don't, you're going to be the least in the kingdom. The societies that buy into the idea of survival of the fittest cannot stand. But you think of the Third Reich, right? You know, they were the Aryan race. They, they were better than everybody else. So let, let's say for argument's sake that the Aryans are the epitome of the human race. Does that mean then that they are to wipe out everybody else? Well, evolution demands it. Because if you're stronger, you're, you need to get rid of the weak. And that's, that's kind of how Hitler and the Third Reich lived their life, and a lot of other people have. But, in God's kingdom, because evolution, first of all, is a lie, and it, it has got nothing to do with truth. Um, so, in God's kingdom, what should have happened is that they should have used their superior intellect and their superior gifts to help the weak become like them, to, to build them up, right? Because that's how the church is. The church helps the weak. We, we, we go to the lost and we, we, we hope to bring them in and help them to find Christ. We don't try to exalt self. But there's ever the epitome of humanity on earth. It wasn't the Aryans. It was Jesus who tabernacled among us. And he and John and the apostles lived their lives carrying the gospel to everyone who 
were, and they were broken, as the old song goes, they were broken and spilled out and used up for God. They gave themselves to the point of death. John shows the disciples answering the call to follow Jesus because in the Gospel of John, because it says because they saw him as the Son of God. Now here they are formerly called in the service. We read over in Luke 5 here, uh, his account, and so um, were also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Now, in our text here too, it mentions uh, John and James, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. And we know that they were uh, rough men. They were not men who gave themselves to others. They were not humble men. Um, that we know that uh, later on, they uh, say, Lord, should, should we call down fire on these cities? This is wipe these cities out because they didn't believe in you. They were, they were rough men. And these are the ones that Jesus called. And, and, that's, and nothing's changed. Because if you've been called by Christ, you were once a lover of self. And all you cared about was self. And, and when God saved you, all of a sudden... You realize, I am now here to serve. I'm here to serve the Lord. I'm here to serve others. And all the disciples changed. They weren't, they weren't what they once were. John points out something else that has never changed. He says, you did not choose me. Now, he's talking to the disciples specifically here. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So, we see here that salvation is a sovereign work of God. Uh, what we see there is that the disciples that one day say, I think we will be disciples. Every once in a while you hear somebody say, I, I decided I'm going to convert to Christianity. Well, okay, fine, but whatever you did, you didn't convert to Christianity because you don't convert yourself. It's got to be done to you. And Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you to be my disciples, to, to be my servants. Because salvation is a sovereign work of God. He takes the initiative and he sees it through. He doesn't just open up our eyes so that we can decide whether we will choose him or not. He chooses us as a sovereign God. And then there is the equal... Equally, the reason he calls us, and that is to bear fruit. He said, I I chose you that you would go and bear fruit. And fruit, in the scriptures, is is always Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit. So he gives us a new nature, so that we live differently than we did before. And there's no exceptions to that. And so the king doesn't ask for followers. You don't see Jesus going saying, would some of you please follow me? I need some disciples. He recruits him. He, he, he drafts him, we might say. And so the simplest way to describe this new life is, is to follow Christ. And that's how he says it here. I'll, I will make you follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So whatever situation you find yourself in, follow Christ and God will work great things out for you. He, he will 
he will give you opportunities to serve him and to honor him. I mean, notice here in verse 19 that the response of those who are efficaciously called by Jesus is that they stop living for themselves and they live for him. And I think in a very real sense, the calling of the apostles is a, a look at the calling of all of us. When God calls you, again, Jesus, I think, says as much when he says, anyone who uh, it looks, puts his hand in the plow, who looks back, who wants to uh, say goodbye to parents, are not, they're not worthy of me. And we don't see uh, the apostles doing that. In other words, the point here is not that they didn't maybe say goodbye, but when he calls them, they no longer were fishermen, they were followers of Christ. They, they, it was a change. We've been, we've been called to follow Christ. We might still retain our same job, but now we're Christians. We're followers of Christ. Now we join the church. Once before we did what we wanted to do, but now we're part of the church. We're different. And I think, that, again, it, it couldn't be any plainer. So there's much more than just following as an example or aping Jesus. Literally the word Follow means to come to me. He's not saying just, you know, get behind me and follow me and act like I do. You know, do what Jesus would do. No. He says, um, come to me. I am your Lord and Savior. But I point this out to make the point that the message of the gospel is not that Jesus is our example and if we follow him, we'll make God happy and he'll let us into heaven. That is a misuse of the gospel. Jesus is our only Savior and King. And that's the message that we are to take to the world. Repent or face his wrath. And I think this demonstrates all this perfect, uh, very well. Jesus, those who follow Christ are servants in the kingdom. And so as I said earlier, uh, two of the guys in our text here I think illustrate this, and that's James and John. They weren't called sons of thunder for no reason. They, they were hotheads. And they were prideful. And remember their, even their mother, uh, who you can see where they get it from, uh, I want my two boys to be on one hand uh, and the other hand in the kingdom. Because again, they thought the kingdom was going to be coming down to earth and, and, and Jesus was going to be on a throne. And so I want them to be on the le- right hand and the left. And Jesus says, uh, do you have any idea what you're asking? Because to be in the kingdom of God means suffering. It means you're going to be given your life, which they did. Um, look at Matthew chapter 4. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 14. Just a couple of, just kind of, put some, uh, build this up. Give me some context for all this. Matthew 14, look at verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, there, This is a desolate place and the day is over. Send the crowds away and go to the village and buy food for themselves. So there you see again, Alright, it's time to eat. Let's send the crowds away. We, we, don't, we, we don't, you know, it, we've got to take care of ourselves. Look at uh, verse chapter 19. Verse 13. Then children were brought to them to him that he may lay hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked the people. So 
uh, you know, Jesus is, is not to be bothered with your kids. You know, this is this is who they were. Not just James and John, but or, uh, but about all of them were saying this. It says, look at the next chapter, verse twenty, chapter twenty, verse twenty-one. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. And he answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup I am to drink? And of course they said, we're able. Because they're just, they're full of themselves. They have no idea what they're getting into, to some degree. Then over in Luke chapter 9, verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem, that is, they knew he was going to Jerusalem and they wanted him to stay and to do their bidding and so they just, they lost interest in him. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you not want us, us to tell the fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And of course, Jesus chides them for that because they don't have any idea what they're saying. You can't be a servant in the kingdom of God and I want to just see everybody go into judgment. We've been called to bring them out of judgment. To, to hopefully through the gospel that they would escape judgment. So when they were called, they were not fishers of men. They were anything but. It took a little while. Really, it took till Pentecost before this really got hold of them. They were selfish, especially uh, in a kind of a racist, religious way in which, as Jews, they, they looked down on those who were uh, not as, either not Jews or they considered to be sinful. And then, at first, they saw their relationship with Jesus as something to take pride in. Lord, let's call down fire. And he makes them fishers of men, and all that changes. And, and in Acts, all of a sudden, we see them willing to give their lives that people might know Christ. So none of them were compassionate. Yet before long, they love the church, and they're uh, to the point that they are suffering and dying for it. I, you know, when I was... In my 20s especially, I spent a lot of hours on a lake fishing. And I know that it takes patience. And you have to cast time after time. And the, relatively speaking, the times you actually catch anything worthwhile is rare compared to the casting. But you never know when that one might bite. It's bite. That's kind of what take, you keep coming back. It's a little bit like golf. You know, it's that one shot that's... Well, I was just about to quit, man. That one shot made me come back, right? That's kind of how evangelism is. It's a lot of people not wanting to hear anything you got to say, but it's that one that does, that, that turns to Christ, that makes it all worthwhile. Maybe another fishing analogy that might be helpful is that a good fisherman keeps himself hidden from the fish. It's all about Christ. It's not about me. We've got to stay out of the way. We just need to preach the gospel. Let Christ do his work. <coughs> and so this call is one of total sacrifice. Christ is our all or he's nothing. We don't share allegiance. And, and that's why I think this illustrates the call so well. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, Jesus did miracles. To fulfill prophecy, come down to verse 23, this last paragraph, and it says he went through Galilee and he's, he's teaching. Uh, he's also healing of every disease and every affliction. And, and there are people who, who kind of ignore the teaching and they get all excited over the healing. But, but the gospel is a very cl- 
clear to let us know that the healing was there only to to verify that he was the Messiah. But the important thing is that is is preaching, of uh, 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 preaching the gospel, but not about the healing. And we see this like in John five thirty six. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father have given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So that's the purpose of the healing. Not, not to make everybody feel better, to be, be healthier, but to point to Jesus Christ. But here he quotes in our text, Matthew 53, uh, where, he, where Matthew says that this was a... Uh, the fulfillment of uh, Matthew or of, of Isaiah, where um, in verse uh, 23, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing of every affliction among the people, uh, because we read in Matthew 23 that um, it, it, this is quoted over. I really kind of get ahead of myself down here in. Uh, well, let me read Matthew 8:6, and then, then I'm going to read something else. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with their word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our, our diseases. I, I, I got the verse out of, I should have read that verse first. So by quoting Isaiah, we see that his miracles of healing also point ultimately to the healing that we need most. In other words, we don't want to get sidetracked into thinking that healing is all that important because all these people got sick and died in pretty short order. None of Jesus' healings lasted all that long because that wasn't the point. It was the point that, in fact, tell them that he was the Messiah. And as Isaiah, I think, points out, the when it says that he... Uh, by by his uh, suffering we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. It's not that we are healed physically. We're healed from our sin. That's kind of the whole point. The health and wealth gospel have got it completely backwards. The cross is that Christ had died on the cross so that we could be healed from our physical suffering in this life. It's, it's to heal us from our sin. Ultimately we shall be healed. In, from all our diseases, but that's in heaven, not now. Look at Luke chapter 4 here, verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. This is, of course, in his hometown, Nazareth. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. This is also from Isaiah. Now notice what he's saying here. Here's, here's, what, I'm, here's what I'm here to do. Proclaim good news to the poor. Well, what what kind of good news is the gospel to someone who's poor? He doesn't give any more money. Well, no, because he's not talking about poor in the flesh. It's not about how much money you got in your pocket. You're poor spiritually. You're lost in your sins. You're you're spiritually bankrupt. The gospel is good news to that person. In fact, that's what we're going to see. And uh, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we deal with blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For they shall see God. So, that's the first thing he says. Isaiah goes on to say, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives. Again, now in that context, it's not that Jesus went around and 
freed anybody from the prisons because he didn't. He's talking about captivity of sin and recovering his sight to the blind. Now, again, he did heal some who were blind, but, again, the context is to illustrate the real problem, the real blindness, which is being lost in your sins. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And, again, Jesus didn't free anybody. It's the oppression of sin. These are all things that the gospel does to the lost. And this is why we proclaim it, because this, this, this is our needs. You don't need to be free. You don't need to have money. You don't need to be healthy. You don't need to be unimpressed by somebody. It's nice, but it's not a need. What we need is to have our sins forgiven. What we need is to know God and be right with Him. What we need is eternal life. And so he sums it up to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what he means by that is this is the day is a day of salvation. Once Christ does his work, now the day of salvation has come. And notice here in verse 21, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus hadn't healed anybody. Because that's not what it was about. So again, we've got to make sure we understand what the kingdom is about, what the mission was about. Not to help people in the flesh, but to help people spiritually. Flashy miracles and were temporary and certainly not meant to be the focus. Because physical healings are not our pressing need. And sometimes it might feel that way when you're in pain. I understand that. But what we need is to know that we shall go to heaven when we die. And so our focus is on Christ and how to glorify him. Not to make ourselves comfortable in these earthly tabernacles. What is more pressing? Killing the pain or removing the cancer? Right? See, and yes... Sin has brought a lot of pain and suffering in this world, but it's that cancer of sin that's got to be removed so that you can be free of it in the next life. Because it's not going to happen in this life. So it's the salvation of the cross that is the only thing that's called the good news in Scripture. The good news was never uh, being delivered. It, it was never about being delivered from our physical problems. <clears throat> So, verse 24 then, we're just about done here. All these diseases were healed, just like every spiritual need will be met. I, I think when it says that Jesus healed all of them, clearly it doesn't mean everybody or everything, but what it, what it, the, the emphasis there is that Jesus, when he does his work, takes care of everything. When he, when he saves us, we'll be completely healed. Uh, elsewhere we read of the blind and the crippled and the deaf being healed. And, and so... When God saves us, we're no longer spiritually blind. We're, we're, we're able to walk and follow the Lord, whereas before we followed ourselves. Before we were deaf to the things of God, and now we have ears to hear. That's, that's what the, all these things are, are pointing to. All the, this points to the spiritual depravity that sin brings upon us. And so I hope that's good news to you. I hope that you're saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to go down to the the, the church down there that has these healings and all this kind of stuff because I, that's kind of what excites me. Well, forget the fact that none of it none of it's real. I hope that the gospel is what excites you, that you treat the word of God as something that you enjoy, that you understand it's a, 
that what I need is to know more about Jesus. I don't need to get my flesh all excited. I don't have time, but if you if you want to turn to Psalm 40 or write it down, Psalm 40 is just a great psalm that talks about uh, <clears throat> the good news and how we should uh, love the good news of what God has done for us. You know, what's the first thing you do when you find something that you find extremely interesting? You go and you tell someone about it. Now, sometimes it's not in a good way because you hear some gossip and the first thing you want to do is tell somebody. But that's just a, that's just a, that's another example. Like we said before, you, once you, you, know, you go out west and you see, you stand before the Grand Tetons and all you want to do is take a picture and, and try to explain to people how wonderful this is or the Grand Canyon or whatever. When you, when Christ excites you, when the, when the things of God become your necessary life, you want to tell others. And if you don't, it's very telling about what it means to you. If you think about it, but you think about it. When you hear something interesting, what do you want to do? You tell someone else about it. And that's how it should be with us in Christ. This is closed by reading. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I might put that on uh, for an in, intro for next week. This is kind of interesting. Now, Jeroboam, Jeremiah, when he's prophesying, he's telling, he tells the king that uh, Babylon's going to come and they're going to destroy you, carry you all off into captivity. And when he, he writes this all down in a scroll, because God told him to, and he gave it to the king. And, can, and then from there we pick this up. And concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, you have burned his scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut it off from man and beast? When the king got the scroll and he read it, he, he didn't like it. He didn't want to read about judgment. And about the fact that he won't be king forever. So he starts cutting it up and throwing it in the fire. Because it was cold. And he used it for, for the kindling on the fire. And so the Lord has Jeremiah write another one. Therefore, says the Lord God concerning Je- Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Here's, here's, here's the next word from God. It doesn't change. He shall have none to sit on the throne of David. And his dead body shall be cast into the heat by the day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them the, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them that they would not hear. And so the point there is that we have a message to proclaim. Uh, the world might not want to hear it, but nothing's changing. God didn't change the message. And so don't let us change the message. Just be, don't, don't be discouraged because it doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere because that's how the Lord works and that's the only thing that's going to save him. And let us be busy about our Father's business and not be discouraged, but to be encouraged because we know that God is sovereign and that his will will be done. All right. That's the ministry of the kingdom of God. And then I think as we look at the next three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, we will see these things confirmed to us even more. Any questions or comments before? All right. Thank you for your attention. I hope you have a good week. Here, sir.